Okay, so we are doing a series on the attributes of God. We started last time, last month in January, with an introduction, and now we're going to move on to the first attributes, the first attribute, sorry, just one. Um, this time we're going to look at the self-existence of God, but before we do that, we're going to look at Something that's also mentioned when you talk about God a lot, and it is the existence of God. The existence of God. That's not an attribute of God, but I wanted to um, include it in this series because there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of people asking that question, does God exist? What does the Bible say? Does God exist? Well, we'll see that the Bible very clearly says that God exists. So we're going to begin there with that question the, one of the most debated topics, maybe ever, does God exist? Is there a God? Or as our enemies, our atheist enemies would say, prove to me that God exists. Show me proof. Show me evidence so that I can believe. Well, that is a debate in and of itself, and I will not dive into that debate because we would spend four or five Sundays on that then, but... I don't want to dive into that debate. It's a, it's a rabbit hole. You can just go down and down and down and never come to the bottom of it. What I want to do is to show that the Bible is not unclear on the fact that God exists. The Bible is not a book of debate. The Bible does not discuss the existence of God. The very first verse in the Bible assumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God there's no hesitation, there's no debate, there's no discussion, there's no laying forth of evidence in the beginning, God. He is there, he always is. In, in fact, there's only two verses in the whole of, of the Bible which, which talk about the possibility of a, of a non-existent God, uh, God's non-existence. It's Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, which have the same words, they say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the only time the Bible talks about the non-existence of God and it calls that, that person a fool. So, the Bible assumes the existence of God. And so do I and so do every Bible-preaching, Bible-believing Christians, or they should do it. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. So the Bible clearly presupposes the existence of God. And nowhere does it require proof or evidence for belief in God or belief in the existence of God. And this is for whatever reason, quite a remarkable statement to make, that to say that the Bible assumes God. You don't need to have proof to believe that there is a, a God or there, that the God exists. Many, many Christians spend a lot of time trying to prove the existence of God. They go into many arguments. They try to, to use logic. They try to use every kind of argument and evidence there is to show there must be a God. And from that, try to prove 
that this God that they have proven is the God of the Bible. Well, for me, that is doing things backwards. It assumes that the Bible is not the highest authority, but that there is some kind of other evidence, some kind of other proof, some kind of other text or whatever that is higher than the Bible, that can show that God exists. I don't believe there is any higher authority than the Bible. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is true. And because the Bible assumes God, I assume the existence of God. And these are my two foundational presuppositions that the Bible is true and that God exists. That is known as presuppositional apologetics, if you want a term for it. You presuppose things. You presuppose that God exists. You presuppose that the Bible is true. This, of course, stands in sharp contrast then with classical apologetics, who does not, they claim they do not presuppose that the Bible is true. They don't presuppose the existence of God. Instead, they try to use evidence from, from uh, creation. And they, they say that the Bible talks about it in Romans 1, and which it does. Romans 1 gives us the reason why anyone can know and do know that God exists. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And from this they then claim that external evidence, evidence from creation, evidence from nature, is sufficient to prove that God exists. Then exactly what this proof is, is a matter of debate. Often they use different kinds of of arguments to try to prove the existence of God, such as the teleological argument, the, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. There are many arguments. And they are all valid. They are all worth the time to study, worth the time to understand. But they are not without assumptions presuppositions. They all presuppose one or more things to be self-evident, to be true. Just like every human being does. There's no man who does not have presuppositions. Every Christian, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, everyone have their presuppositions. The evidentialist the one who believes only in that which can be proved by evidence have their presuppositions. 
They presuppose that proofs speak for themselves. That's a presupposition. I do not hold to that. I don't believe that proofs speak for themselves. You interpret proof. You interpret evidence. And based on your worldview, that evidence, that proof, might mean something. So I believe it's problematic for a number of reasons, but that's beside the point. My point is that everyone has presuppositions. Everybody has assumptions. Also the classical apologist. So, if you go back a little bit to the classical apologist again, to the, to the arguments they make, they all fail to do one important thing, which every Bible preacher should be careful not to do. That's the point I'm trying to reach here. None of those arguments show who the God is, the God of the Bible. They don't answer the question, who are you, God? Who are you, God? That's the question I asked last time. That's the thing we're going to try to answer by this series. Who are you, God? They don't reveal the God of the Bible. They don't show him to be holy, loving, just, wise, angry with sin. At best, they show that a God exists. The Bible is not trying to show that a God exists. The Bible is trying to show the God that exists. It's trying to show us creatures human beings, that we are sinful creatures and that God is a holy, loving, sin-requiring, payment-requiring God. He's not just a God, a static God. He's a living God. He has a law. He requires payment for sin. So therefore, I, I will use our time this morning not to try to prove to you that God exists. I would assume that most of you believe that already. Um, so that's kind of a waste. The Bible assumes that God exists. We'll see that we have all the evidence we need for God's existence, for God's power, for God's authority. But it is not the evidence that is the ground on which we, we base our belief or our hope. Rather, it is his inspired, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word, which is the ground of our faith. It is that word. So, uh, let's take a look at the Bible then. Let's look at a passage from Scripture. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We'll, we'll see a little bit about what Jesus teaches about belief in this, this section. Mark chapter 5. Let's read from verse 21 to 24. Then we'll skip a little bit and go down to verse 35 and 36. So beginning in verse 21, Mark chapter 5. 
verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And then down to verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Let's end there. This is a story, or the story, of the synagogue official named Jairus, who has a daughter who is terminally ill. She is on the point of death. He's desperate. He needs someone. He needs Jesus to come and rescue her, to save her. Oh, we, we all know how the story ends. Jesus comes and do rescue that girl. He, he raises her up from death to life. But that's, that's not the point I'm trying to, to make here. We all know how the story goes. I, I want to see something else here in this story. And also we could look at the other stories, but I'm going to skip those. At least just quickly mention them. There, there's the story of the Gerasene demoniac, the beginning of the chapter. And uh, inserted in, into this story about Jairus, there's the, the woman with internal bleedings, and which has grown now increasingly bad. And in both of these cases, both the Gerasene demoniac both the, uh, and the, uh, the, the bleeding, the woman with bleedings, Jesus miraculously heals them. He heals them perfectly. There's no lack in Jesus' miracle. And both of these cases could therefore be ample evidence for Jairus to see that Jesus truly has the power to save his daughter. There is evidence to show that Jesus has power to save anyone he likes, which is true. So, is Jairus being comforted by the evidence he has, by the examples he can see? The woman came and interrupted the, uh, Jesus going to, to Jairus' house. He's, he's, he's stopped there. She's stopping that, that procession. She comes and touches Jesus' garment and stops it. And Jairus, of course, is, is very urgent to get, to get home. His daughter is dying. She's on the point of death. Please come quickly. But this, here comes this, this woman and, and, and she's healed. Even though she was not exactly dying, she was ill, but she wasn't really dying. At least not there. But still Jesus stopped. Jesus said to her, You're healed. You're saved. So all this is truly could truly be used as evidence, proof that Jesus can heal. But in neither of these cases, the Gerasene demoniac, the woman with bleedings, Neither of these cases are the miracles performed or the power shown 
the evidence, the proof on which Jairus is to base his belief. Jesus' command to Jairus is a very short one. Verse 36 says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Only believe. Jairus is to believe in Jesus simply because he tells him to do so. Not because of the evidence he has seen. Jesus is not saying, Believe because you saw this woman be healed. Believe because you have heard about the Gerasene demoniac being healed. No, Jesus says, only believe. He's to believe because the words that Jesus speaks have authority. Divine authority. They're spoken by God himself. And it is because Jesus is God that anyone is to believe in what he says. It's not because he has done miracles. It's not because he has the power of God. It's not because we can logically reason that Jesus has done great things, therefore he is God. No, it is because Jesus is God that the miracles make sense. We are to believe because Jesus tells us so. Because he tells Jairus to do so. Only believe. Of course, there's much more that could be said on this passage, but I, I don't want to go way too deep into it. What it means, what it does not mean, is just quickly understand that the words only believe does not entail easy believism. Jesus is not giving the gospel here. He's not giving a, a way of salvation to Jairus. He is, uh, when, he, when he preaches the gospel, he always includes repentance. There's always a command to repent and believe. This is not about the gospel. This is a passage which, which uh, talks about apologetics. How we are to answer those who ask for a reason for the hope that is within us. Why we believe in God. That reason involves no evidence. Indeed, evidence is not appropriate. Evidence fails to give us hope. Evidence fails to answer the question why we have hope, why we believe. Jesus did not instruct Jairus to believe. Because of the evidence he had, he instructed him to only believe. That's the basis of Jairus' belief. Jesus' word, only believe. And in the same way, we are not to believe that God exists because we have ample proof or evidence. But because the Bible assumes it. How does it, the Bible begin? In the beginning, evidence? In the beginning, God. Bibles, the Bible says that God exists. Right, but enough of, of, uh, on that topic. Let's actually look at the, the God that the Bible talks about. The God of scriptures. So let's look at the first 
attribute. Let's actually begin this series now. And it is the self-existence of God or aseity of God. That's a, that's a word that theologians like to use. So if you ever hear it, aseity of God, self-existence of God, that's what it means. Same in Swedish, almost. Comes from Latin, a se, from itself. Means that God depends on nothing else or no one else but himself for his existence. In other words, no one, no one brought God into existence, nor does anyone or anything sustain him but himself. He is eternal. He is foundational. He is the being. He is the being which gives being to anybody else. We are human beings because he is the eternal being. He's the source of all life. He's perfectly independent from anyone and anything. For most Christians, this is something we can agree on. There's not a lot of disagreement on that, those, those, uh, those statements. However, this topic becomes a source of... Division when you when you draw the understanding of the aseity of God to uh, to also include purpose or will choice. There's definitely a large crowd Christians, so-called Christians, that would deny that God has perfect independence when it comes to the human will. That would be our our uh, semi-Pelagian brothers, if they are brothers who claim that the human free will is independent, independent from God. So it is important to be clear, not only in what we mean by the aseity of God, but also to which extent that self-existence, independence go. Does it stretch to all aspects of existence? Time, space, will, purpose. Because you cannot have a perfectly independent God and a perfectly independent man. At one point you've got to choose between God's independence and man's independence. Now there, and I would say that there are a, a significant number of scripture texts that testify to the fact that God is perfectly independent also in purpose and will in any aspect really. I will only mention a few of them because we only have so much time this morning but let's, let's look at a few of them. We, also, we already mentioned oh, uh, Mark, which talks about Jesus' power to, sa to uh, save anyone he likes, to do miracles whenever he likes. He doesn't need the daughter to be alive to save her. He can save her anyway. Also see God's self-existence, his, his having life in himself in one of the most was known texts when it comes to, to this subject. This is John 5, 26. We'll look a little bit more on that later. Which says, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. 
But the Bible also says that that God existed before all things and that everything who exists exists through him. That is in 1 Corinthians. We'll come to that in, in my other series in a few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 which says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom we by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Everything that exists, exists through Jesus. And the Bible also says that God is Lord of all. There is nothing that he is not having dominion over. He is the Lord of everything. For the Lord, Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Even if there were so-called gods, God is their God. And for all lords, God is their Lord. The Bible also says that God depends on nothing, but everything depends on him. Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything depends on God. And God is also the source of everything, as I've already mentioned. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God is the source of all life. God puts an end to all life. God is the one who puts to death and gives life. And also God does as he wills. He's independent in will. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. Which means that his counsel is the basis of everything. Psalm 33 verse 10 and 11 says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. His counsel always stands. Every nation, every heart, every human being has to submit to his counsel. And God needs nothing. God is all sufficient. Acts 17 verse 25 says, God is not served. By human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He doesn't need anything from us. He gives everything to us. So, God is independent in mind, in will, in his counsel, 
in his love, in his power. In time, in space, God is perfectly and fully independent, self-existent. But I mentioned one text there at the beginning, John 5, 26. Let's, let's have a look, little look at this passage before we, before we end this, this sermon. John 5, 26, one of the most known passages. When you talk about the self-existence of God, which I already read to you, it says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now, no verse is fully understood without the context that the text is in. So let's, let's have a look at what the, what the context here is. What is Jesus, because it is Jesus who's speaking. What is he saying? To whom is he speaking? What's the background to this? Chapter 5 of the Gospel of John is a chapter that, again, has the foundation that Jesus is God. Just as in Mark 5, the foundation, the, the, the uh, presupposition is that Jesus is God. It's not trying to prove that Jesus is God. Jesus is God, therefore, he can do miracles. The story in the beginning of the chapter is, that, is a, of a sick man. He's lying by the side of a pool named Bethesda. He's been ill for 38 years. There's, there's no one who... who helps him to get down to the water which he believes will make him better. So Jesus sees this man and he asks him if he wishes to be healed. Now the man responds to that. Again, no one helps him to go down to the water. He believes that he will be healed if he can go down to the pool of water. Jesus says these words to him. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. There's no delay. The man immediately gets up. He picks up his pallet and he walks. It's a perfect miracle. But the sick man and his illness is not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that Jesus has the authority to simply command a man to be healed, to get up, to pick up his pallet and walk. This no created human being can do. No one, no faith healer can command a sick man, a, a man who has been sick for 38 years, to simply get up and walk away. Only Jesus have, has that authority. That's the authority that comes from God. And again, this miracle doesn't prove that Jesus is God. Jesus is God, therefore, he can perform miracles. So note that not only is Jesus commanding the man to to, uh, get up, but also to pick up his pallet and to walk. And why is this significant? Why is he telling him to do these things? Isn't it enough just to tell him to get up, to heal him? As we, we see in the text, this, this healing, this miracle happened on the Jewish Sabbath day. Now, carrying a pallet was considered working. 
couldn't carry it around. The text goes on to say that he meets some Jewish leaders and they tell him that he cannot carry his ballot. It is the Sabbath. Indeed, they, when they learn that Jesus was the man who healed him, they take great offense to it. They, they believe that he is breaking Sabbath rules. So they began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 16. And this, like other passages when Jesus breaks Sabbath rules, testifies that Jesus is God. Jesus has the power to do miracles. Jesus can do miracles on the Sabbath. He answers these Jews, verse 17, saying, My father is working until now, and I myself is working. Meaning Jesus can work on the Sabbath. God can work on the Sabbath. God can heal on the Sabbath. Jesus can heal on the Sabbath. And this meant, of course, one thing to his Jewish audience, that Jesus made himself equal with God. It says so in verse 18. And they were right, of course. Jesus was making himself equal with God. God the Father with Yahweh. There's no other meaning to the statement. And making yourself equal with God was, of course, blasphemy. No man, no created man has the right to put himself or herself at the same position as God. So they are right. He is making himself equal with God. This means that He's worthy of the death penalty in their eyes, except the fact that Jesus actually is God. And that's exactly the point of the, 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 this chapter here in John's Gospel. Jesus is God, therefore he can perform miracles, he can work on the Sabbath, Sabbath. he has the authority that God has. The text continues with Jesus explaining what the source of his works are or, or is. Jesus says that whatever the Father does these things, the Son also does in like manner. Verse 19. So Jesus is doing the things which the Father is doing. These things not only involve um, healing miracles, but greater things than these. Jesus explains that he has the power of life, giving life to whomever he wishes. Is this temporal life, physical life only? We know that Jesus could raise up people from the dead, like he did with uh, the daughter of Jairus, like he does with um, Lazarus in John 11. So is, is, is it only this that Jesus is talking about? Temporal, physical life? He can give that to whomever he wishes? Well, he has that power as well. But his power does not end there. It extends also to eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
that's verse 24. And it is Jesus who gives the command to the dead to live. It is Jesus who raises the dead to eternal life. It is he who commands them to live forever. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Jesus has the ability to give eternal life to whomever he wishes. And those who hear his voice, those who hear his command, will live. Like the sick man at Bethesda, who, when, he, when he heard the command of Jesus to get up, pick up your pallet and walk, he got up, he picked up his pallet and walked on the Sabbath. And in like manner, all who hear Jesus' command on the last day to be raised up, to live again, they will live forever. This life, eternal life, is not the life that we have in and of ourselves. It is the life which comes only from God comes only from the eternal being. The being that has life apart from everything and everyone else. It is perfectly self-sustaining life. It's eternal life. And it is here we find this verse that we read earlier. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. God has life. In himself. He's perfectly self-sustaining. He has no need of anything or anyone to live. He needs nothing outside himself. His life extends into eternity. Not only eternity future, but also eternity past. We all had a starting point. We all came into existence at one point in time, but God has forever existed. And that God can give that life, eternal life, to whomever he wishes, because he has that life in himself. That is the self-existence of God. But so what? What, what do we do with this fact or this truth that God is self-existent, that God has life in himself? What does it mean? How does it affect us? Why should we care about that? That's a good question. It's a really good question. Why do we care that God has eternal life, self-existence? Why does that matter to us? Let me tell you a personal story. I don't very often tell personal stories, but let me for once do it. Um, my father died almost to the day, six years ago. I had had my birthday 
the beginning of February. He was there with my mother, my sister also, I believe, and her family. He, he, he seemed well. He had been very tired. He had, he had um, cancer. So he had been very tired. Been, he had grown increasingly bad. His condition had grown increasingly bad. But he was there at my birthday when I turned 27. We, we went to a restaurant. We, we ate. It was a very good time. He had, been, had the, the ability to eat a lot. But he, he actually ate there at the restaurant. Everything, everything seemed fine. He looked better than, than before. And uh, we were hopeful for his, for his condition. A few weeks later, three weeks later, I think, he died. He ceased to exist. He no longer had life in himself. His body, which just the moments before, had had a pulsating heart, a conscience, breath, turned into a dead corpse. However, my, my father's death did not destroy the hope of once again seeing him. Seeing him alive, seeing him full of life, seeing him full of life that is eternal, life abundant. That is what hope is based on. The fact that Jesus has said, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He also says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And now is when the dead, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. I care about the aseity of God, about the self-existence of God. Because God has the power to give that eternal life to whomever he wishes. He has the power to raise the dead to life. And this is most clearly shown in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus paid the penalty of sin. He humbled himself. He descended from heaven, became a man like us, flesh and blood. He was under the law. He was mocked, rejected, sentenced to death. He died. He really, really died. Physical death. It wasn't just a show. He wasn't merely unconscious. He really died. And he rose from the dead. He sealed his victory over sin and death. And he ascended to the Father. He now sits at the right hand side of the Father interceding for his people. This Jesus holds the keys to life and death and Hades. This Jesus has the ability to give life to whomever he wishes. 
this Jesus has the power of being, of existence, of life. He is perfectly self-existent. So therefore I have great hope that we too one day, when we die, when we cease to exist here in, in this physical world, we will have eternal life. This is the difference between life and death. If you believe in God, who can raise the dead, you have nothing to fear. But if you don't, you truly have everything to fear. If you believe in God who upholds everything and sustains all life, you will have life forever and ever. But if you do not believe, your life is quickly, quickly running away. If you believe in God who gave you your existence, your being, your life, you know that your existence is for the praise of the glorious grace of God in your salvation. But if you do not believe, your existence is for the praise of his glorious justice in your condemnation. God's self-existence is important, is important because without it we wouldn't exist. It matters because of it we can eternally exist. Let's end there. Let's end in a word of prayer. Our Lord and our Father, we thank you for the existence, for the life that you have given us, every single one of us, that we have life because you have decided to give it to us, that we live because you are gracious and gives us that life. Oh Lord, we know that we once were your enemies. We once deserved the penalty of death and the penalty of hell. But Lord, you showed us grace. You showed us mercy. You saved us unto eternal life for nothing that is found in us but for your goodness sake. Oh Lord, we ask that you would humble our hearts, that we would come before you and recognize that you truly are independent, self-existent. And we derive everything from you. Lord, we pray for those who do not believe you, whose life is quickly running away. Please, Lord, be merciful to them. Show them grace. Give them eternal life, the life that the Son has and gives to whomever he wishes. Oh, Lord, please, we ask for those. Now, Lord, let your name be glorified in this message. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.